Greetings, most excellent Theophilus. Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, your servant in Christ, am now 21 years of age. You know what that means. Something. Spent the last week away in 1863. I really hope I did proper to inform you, Theophilus. If not, I do sincerely apologize and hope you'll forgive me. But I think I'll make it up for it today with a more fruitful podcast than you have seen as of late. Today we will be discussing, dear Theophilus, communion and the Eucharist, which are the same thing. Though, before we hop into that, let's get some state of affairs out of the way. Our president is working on pressing for getting ghost guns banned. The whole point of a ghost gun is that no one knows you have one. Not quite sure how you're going to regulate it. <laughs> From the sounds of it, he also wants to ban the non-existent class of weapon known as an assault rifle. I know of no such gun by that particular um, manufacturing title. Looking it up, uh... Hmm... Oh, what's this? Oh, it looks like we have a mirror match from Germany, the STG... 44, or Sturmgewehr 44. Sturmgewehr. Storm Rifle. The closest gun in history to be named such a thing is not actually called an assault rifle. Hmm. Fun fact, the STG 44 was basically the design foundation for the Avtomat Kalashnikov uh, 1947, the AK-47. So, Biden's out to ban a non-existent firearm. Uh, he also wants to ban high-capacity magazines, you know, all of the liberal drivel. Uh, and if you or a loved one are under the impression that this country would be better off without guns, uh... I think you need to book a flight back home to England because your blood is clearly not the same blood that fought and died hurling lead at the British for this land. In similar news, Penn and Teller exegete the Declaration... Declaration? Sorry, Constitution better than they exegete Scripture. We'll be playing this on 1.5 speed. All right. You want to pick and choose? We can go further. Let's play along with Dr. Meyer and use the Bible to impeach the Bible. Check these out. No out-of-context bullshit. This is what it says. Uh, Exodus 21, verse 7 says it's okay to sell your daughter into slavery. Not even in Nevada. Exodus 13. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, let's break that down, shall we? Notice their, uh, well, I guess I should say notice their exegetical method after I've exegeted the passage. 
Alright, Exodus 21. Let's just start at the beginning of it. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to their master, and only the man shall go free. Property management. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children, and I do not want to go free, then this master must take him before the judges, and he shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. Okay, I'm going to get some flack for my support of God's decreeing in that passage that it's... That is an okay situation. Um, I'm not sure what the problem is there. You've got a situation where you get to the point where you've got a debt. You can either starve to death because you have nothing, or you can become a slave or servant of someone. The first thing you need to strip away in your listening to this, is the transatlantic slave trade's view of slavery, where slaves were stolen by fellow tribesmen uh, from their tribes and sold, ferried across the Atlantic, hence transatlantic slave trade, uh, and owned by ruthless masters who did not properly read the Bible, and in fact, if they offered a Bible to the slaves, would edit it, taking out passages that where God says how a master should actually treat their servant. Meanwhile, what we have is God revealing how his people can deal with certain issues in their society in ways that are much more improved and regulated than the surrounding nations. But if the woman bears him children, they should go with him when he's free. Says... Just as God grants and determines the purview of that grant, so the slave master was allowed to grant. But the slave wasn't allowed to keep that which was granted him. I don't have a problem with that. And then with the next part, I think your best objection would have to be, are you telling me that there aren't people who might actually love the person they're working for so much that they would much rather stay. It's like, is it impossible? Oh, but they were violently, physically, and sexually abused. No, read the rest of what these passages say about how you are to treat people under your very care. If you rape someone, you are to be stoned. If you beat them unto death which would be any sort of significant beating, uh, would at least risk that, or bodily harm, you are to be fairly eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth repaying. But let's read on to what Penn and Teller mentioned in passing. <clears throat> 7. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as manservants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her 
for himself. Uh-oh. she going to get beaten? she going to get violated? He must let her be redeemed. Oh, that's horrible. Wait, what? Let her be redeemed? He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. Ah, he must redeem her from her status as a servant if she does not please him. Hey, look, I I've got some... I, I need some food. If, if my daughter works for you, can we kind of strike a deal where you pay us with food or supplies? Ah, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Comes back, hey, um, so she's doing a terrible job. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, no, it's, it's fine. Here, here, she's, she's all yours. No longer under my purview. Not gonna hire her out to any other places to work. I, you can you can logic through how this scenario plays out. Um, in a perfect world, you say, but I mean, that's no matter what rule humanity is given, that's assuming a world where everybody plays by the rules. <sighs> oh, and women's rights in... What century is this estimated to be? In 15th century B.C., uh, another point towards women's rights in 15th century B.C., reading on verse 9, If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. Okay. She's as a daughter to him. She has rights. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. Ah, so the, ser so the woman who, ha who was a servant, who has become a wife, must be fed, clothed, and, you know, treated as the wife is. The man shall leave his mother and, the and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh through consummation of marriage. If he does not provide for her with these things, she is to go free without any payment of money. That is spectacular women's rights. I mean, look, you're poor, so you go to work for this man. He's like, hey, you know, you'd be pretty good for my son. So you get married, and your son absolutely mishandles everything and can't feed you, so you are allowed to go free from that contract. Sounds pretty good. That sounds better than the normal marriage agreement, where there's really only one technical consequence that would allow you to, to uh, separate from that contract. Alright, that's giving that passage so many more seconds than Penn and Teller did. Let's go back to their video. 35, verse 2. It clearly states that anyone working on the Sabbath should be put to death. You really gonna feel good about enforcing that one? Hell, oh. Am I really going to feel good about enforcing that one? I'm sure the Jews did. The Jews who understood the holiness of their God and his decree. The Jews who had very well in their mind when Adab and Abihu were struck down 
from the presence of the Lord within the temple for their offering of strange fire. <laughs> God is not one to be trifled with, and he made the Sabbath his day. And it is one of the many things for which the nations Israel replaced blasphemed God. So, for Israel to not obey such decrees, that would put their contractual agreement for the land of Israel in jeopardy. Yep, just as they treated any other form of a blasphemy law, they diligently carried it out. How Jews do that to this day, I don't think they do. How Torah observance and Messianic Jews do, I have no clue. Oh, look at this, uh, Corinthians eleven fourteen. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? Okay. And they hold up a picture of Jesus. Uh, 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 uh. As a man with a mane, it does bequeath me to understand that passage. And let us walk through it, shall we? Actually, no, let's, let's take, in, take in time I wanted to expend for other things. <sighs> so it's understood that in Corinth, <clears throat> if a man was sexually promiscuous, they would grow their hair long. And if a woman was sexually promiscuous, she would uncover her head, or cut her hair short, or even shave it off. So Paul is, in the long run, saying, God doesn't want you to dress like a harlot in his house. In fact, that would be a way to make this as modern as possible, I think, would be if, if he said, does not the very nature of things tell you that a man's pants should not be riding so low, he should not be walking around at the same time shirtless. A uh, woman's, uh, woman's, what's that called? The, the, the opposite of the, the cleavage, the, what you call it, the cut on the shirt. Isn't there like a, well, cleavage is what you call like that, but isn't there like a name for like the part of the, no, I guess it's just called, anyways, when it's, when it's too deeply showing, um, they shouldn't wear clothes like that. They shouldn't wear crop tops. They shouldn't wear, you know, those, not short skirts necessarily. I'm talking about, like, you know, those denim pants that don't have pant legs. Yeah, like, or, you know, stock, you know. <laughs> Ironically, for traditional woman fashion, you could probably argue that in today's culture, you should argue against wearing leggings and stockings to church in particular manners. Those might be uh, become a stumbling block to your brother um, or sister, unfortunately, as a sexual sin pervades everything. Uh, <clears throat> but no, <laughs> that's, that's, I think that's a healthy way to understand that passage, is it's talking about those things that identify you, based on the culture around you, as one who is sexually promiscuous. In fact, let me read it, just so you don't have to take my word for it. The passage even identifies a woman's hair already as 
her hovering. Oh, is that in 2 Corinthians? No, okay. <clears throat> First Corinthians eleven fifteen. But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. Wait, Paul, you're just saying women need to be doing their stuff with their head covered. Now you're saying their hair is there for a covering? Oh, yeah. Paul is saying that that's why it was given. Culturally, uh, on top of that, they would need to veil to be modest. Um, but I very much agree. Hair was given to a woman as her covering. It would be perhaps a over-assessment of this verse to say that's why uh, monks... Maybe that's what led to monks having their heads shaved. So that it would always be uncovered, truly. All right, back to the travesty. Let's, let's write about that one. And continuing on, verse uh, 19 to 24, commands that a man should not go near a woman when she's on her period. I'd like to know if he was getting that from the New or the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of purity laws in the Old Testament. Uh, <laughs> you know, because blood, it's nasty. God was giving Israel a law, one, for ceremonial purity, and two, because that th those laws about like cleanliness were actually really good considering ancient times when you don't have uh, germex. <laughs> you don't have germex. You don't have masks. Uh, in fact, God actually instills uh, true quarantine. Uh, if someone in your camp is sick, send them out for 40 days. Quarantine. You know, that sort of semantic uh, evolution of term for four. But I don't think he was quoting a New Testament passage on that, and of course, Hebrews tells us the marriage bed is undefiled, meaning uh, so long as it's within God-ordained marriage, and it's not harming anyone, uh, what you do behind closed doors is what you do behind closed doors. All right. You try asking the judge if she's on the rag before approaching the bench in traffic court. If you... Oh, that's horrible application. Um, believe it's your God and your God is infallible. You can't throw out some of the rules just because you don't like them. <laughs> Certainly, Penn and Teller. Certainly. I don't throw out rules because I don't like them. I, uh, I rightly understand that most of what you said was Old Covenant. And I am... I am neither ethnically nor religiously Jewish. I am Christian. Um, I am New Covenant Gentile, grafted in to the true Israel, uh, which is a homogenous vine, the root of which is the root of Jesse, Jesus Christ. But I didn't really need to dive into those passages. I wanted to compare their complete lack of actual assessment of the passages they were talking about versus how they explain the Second Amendment. All right, here we go. I said, here we go. Read the words. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Sure, you need an organized military force to defend your country, but the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the people, in contrast with the militia. It doesn't say the right of the militia to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It says the right of the people. Now, why the word people? Because the people who wrote this had just fought a war for two years against a tyrannical state militia. 
They knew the time might come when they'd have to do that again. So they made the possession of weapons a right that the militia could never take away. Now, gun control advocates say the phrasing is clumsy, and the comma, separating the state from the people, is just a pause to get your breath. <laughs> Strange, they can't seem to point out any other places where those hack framers fucked up the wording. Oh, ouch. Please, don't. No swearing. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry for that, Theophilus. <clears throat> I did not know that was there. I should have previewed this before I, uh... But no, uh, there is an amazing example. Somehow, when it's... Well, what's funny is because that's not even a secular thing that they are discussing. The amendment was written by God-fearing men, um, who actually truly accepted the Lord our God. Um, however, they were able to exegete it better than they were a single passage of Scripture. Huh. I don't have much of a point to make after that. I just... Funny that. Funny that. All right, Theophilus, and that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for... T I'm just kidding. Uh, that's belated April Fool's joke, because, uh, you know, I wasn't here Friday. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, to get into our next topic. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Your rabbi has guided you to a borrowed room for the meal. It's the time of Passover, first century Yisrael, Jerusalem. He's just done the unthinkable, taken off his beautiful outer garment, wrapped it around himself, and washed each of your feet, a common custom in the culture done by a servant because of the dust you would collect from wearing sandals and walking around unpaved streets all day. You were shocked. You're sitting around the table, on the floor, on a nice little cushion. One of your friends is leaning his head against the rabbi's chest. Normal friendship. The Seder is set before you, a roasted shank bone representing the pesca sacrifice, an egg representing the spring time in a circle of life, bitter herbs laid before to represent the bitterness of the shackles of slavery you experienced in Egypt, your people did, at least. Araset, an applesauce-like mixture of wine, nuts, apples, other mashed things. This to represent the mortar used by your people in Egypt. Carpus, or greens, the bitter garnish such as parsley, again representing springtime. Out of the bag, Christ takes one of the three crackers of matzah. You know that this unleavened bread is to represent the bread the Israelites took with them as they fled Egypt. There is salt water to represent the tears of the slaves and a wine glass. But he's starting to say something different than you expect regarding the bread. He's given Eucharist in Greek. He's given thanks. Matthew 26, 26. Gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples. He dispersed it amongst you. You take the bit of cracker. As he says, take and eat. This 
is my body. After that, he takes the cup, giving thanks, and offers it to each of you, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That is the context in which Jesus presented the Eucharistic meal, the Thanksgiving, the Lord's Supper, the Communion. I would simply ask, do you think, do you think that the roasted shank bone was literally a pesca sacrifice? Uh, do you think that the egg was literally spring in the circle of life? Uh, that the bitter herbs were the shackles of slavery, the bitterness of slavery? Uh, that the harasset was the very mortar that the Jews used in Egypt, or that the karpas was spring as well. But there are those, but there are those out there who will think that the cracker was the the, the matzah broken was actually Christ's body broken for us, rather than understanding this represents his body which is broken for us and they will take his blood he they'll take the wine as his very blood that was poured out for us rather than a symbolic reminder of the blood that was poured out for us i just like to ask anyone who thinks such thinks that the jews understood it as such do you get that idea from the rest of the context in which Jesus revealed this marker of the covenant? Here, eat this metaphor. Here, eat this metaphor. Here, eat this metaphor and this metaphor and this metaphor. But here is actually my body. Here is actually my blood. Is that what's being communicated? Or just as the Jew could say, that the roasted shank is the pesca sacrifice, that the egg is spring and the circle of life, and that the herbs are the bitterness of slavery, and that the haraset is the mortar used. So can Christ say, this is my body, which is broken for you, and this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Let's look at the Didache on earlychristianwritings.com. Let's see what the writers of this thought regarding the Eucharist. <clears throat> Chapter 9. Now concerning the Eucharist, give thanks this way. First concerning the cup. We thank ye, our Father, for the holy wine of David thy servant, which thou madest known to us through Jesus thy servant. To thee be the glory forever. This is where it gets most interesting. And concerning the broken bread, we thank ye, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you madest known to us through Jesus thy servant. To thee be the glory forever and ever, even as this broken bread 
was scattered over the hills, and was gathered together and became one, so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth unto thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Their view of that, as shown by their prayer, actually shows a different symbology even than one might at first presume. In the prayer over the bread, it becomes a completely different <clears throat> a completely different metaphor for the true body of Christ, the church, being scattered all over the ends of the earth, and a request that just as the elements of the bread were gathered together and made into one homogeneous lump, that so too God's children would be gathered together into the one homogeneous body of Christ, the bride, awaiting her groom. A common objection is John chapter 6. Well, let's read John chapter 6. John 20, sorry, John 6, 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. 28, then they asked him, What must we do? What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Profound. 30, So they asked him, What miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is when he comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sorry, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world? Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never get drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and shall be raised up with him at the last day. At this the Jews began to grumble about him because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, 
Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? <laughs> How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. But no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat, of, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. And on hearing it, many disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which one of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time on, many disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The words of eternal life. Not the bread, notice he says here. The words of eternal life. Even Peter acknowledged that Christ was talking about his word. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. 70. Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. I hear Christ saying, He who feeds on me, and I'm reminded of a little something in Psalm 22. I'm not a man, but a toloth, 
a worm. A Toloth worm, you see, it's this little, little white bug, this little white caterpillary type worm. Uh, when it's time for it to complete its gestation, it climbs up on a tree. This is in Jewish culture. They, they understood this. It's in the psalm. Toloth. Um, climbs up on the tree and perishes. White. Flaky. And its children feast upon it. The white is eaten away, leaving a red streak. Just as Christ, our very Savior, our righteousness, was put on a tree and died, so that feeding upon him, we could be the first fruits. He, sorry, that he could be the firstborn amongst us, that we might have life in him, just as the offspring of a Toloth worm have life in the mother dying upon the tree. We have life in Christ in that he died upon the cross. Christ is not truly a toloth, but a toloth was God's little nod to Christ. And here we, we have Christ saying, there, there's no other type of flesh. I've had it argued that this is talking about flesh in the sense that Paul is talking about the flesh. It's not. The, the only type of flesh in purview is Christ's own offered flesh. To wit, he says, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And Peter understands this. He says, you have the words of eternal life. He doesn't say, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the bread of eternal life. He says, you have the words of eternal life. Did we even look earlier in John for him being symbolic? <clears throat> John 4. Let's go 4. Yeah, sure. 4-4. Four, four. Now, now he had to go through Samaria. Jesus. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our forefather Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? As he did also his sons and his flocks and herds, Jesus answered, 
Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Will never thirst. So Jesus speaks of himself and what he gives us in this spiritual manner. He's offering us something that is imperishable. Whereas that which we can get from a farm or from a well, it'll only satisfy us for a time, but the Word of God gives us eternal sustenance. I need to do a series sometime on all of the passages where Christ talks about His words because He talks about them in this way. In, in, in scripture speaks of the word of Christ as that which is actually our sustenance, not the Eucharist, but the very word of Christ, the very word of God. <sighs> but another issue raised will be from Corinthians, and uh, let's tackle that. I believe that's Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13? Nope. Nope, that's 2 Corinthians, I guess. Okay. Flipping their lives towards the end. I know that much. No. Oh boy. Okay, I'm going to find this. Okay. 1 Corinthians 11, 17. <clears throat> In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you. Uh, to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, and another gets drunk. You don't have, don't, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance, not partaking, not, not transubstantiation. <laughs> Do this in remembrance of me. 25. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is what we do in communion. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember not our sin, but our sin-bearer. Christ crucified. The body broken, the blood poured out for us.
that we might be forgiven. Not through the Eucharist. We are not saved by eating the little wafer and drinking the little grape juice or having the loaf of bread and having the little sip of wine. We do it as a holy worship before our God, a proclamation of what he has done. <clears throat> 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, so what would be the unworthy manner he's talking about? Well, he just said, there are those who go hungry. There are those who get drunk. These people aren't actually observing the Lord's Supper. They're going there to be gluttons and drunkards. Leaving others to have nothing and dishonoring the house of God by engaging in sin, by overeating, by debauchery. And with the very blood of, blood of Christ, as Paul addresses here, <clears throat> therefore whoever eats this bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of, uh, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Cough, <laughs> so sleep. Um, <clears throat> have fallen asleep. Uh, but, uh, but if we judge ourselves, we should not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. That's his directive of what we're supposed to do. Wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Oh, the judgment is, again, tying back to what it said at the beginning, that it's about the gluttony and the debauchery. So that in meeting together, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Uh, so that, that's a passage that's been used to try to defend, again, that it is his very, very blood, very body. I just read that in a way where I still come away from it without thinking that. It is a very special thing. It is, the, it is the continual sign of our covenant with God. We have baptism, which is the primary sign, the replacement for the sign of circumcision. Uh, and we have the ongoing sign of the covenant, which is the very blood of the covenant. And it's, this is simply a passage about do not dishonor that, because, you know, it's God you're dishonoring when you dishonor it. Um, and, I, I don't know, is are people who abuse that outside of the normal consequence that comes from being gluttons and drunkards? Uh, are they... Are they weak and sick and dying? I can understand that as a first century 
<clears throat> judgment of God in the same way uh, Ananias and Sapphira were stricken for lying to God. Although in that passage, that was the Holy Spirit they were also lying to, so... Huh, I, guess, I guess the Holy Spirit's God. Sorry, I, I'm apologetically minded whenever there's a little point. I like to point it out. Um, <laughs> that, um, no, I feel like that passage is very clear in what it's teaching. Uh, it, gives a, it gives an example of how to conduct communion, which eh, churches I've been to literally quote this passage in conducting... <sighs> Sorry. <sighs> in conducting communion. Um... I've never seen anyone practice what Paul's preaching against. All right, I'm not certain on any other key passages uh, used in defense of that. Oh, I would like to bring up another... Actually, so far in my experience with the Church Fathers, I'm still working on reading the Church Fathers. Um... Some defense for my view of it. I will be perfectly honest. I am a memorialist, although I would prefer to have the Eucharist every Sunday if I could. Because it's special and it's important, etc., etc. But to the Epistle of Barnabas, section 11, parsing... Is it 11? No, it is not 11. One. Um, ah, it is 11. 11. Barnabas 11. 11. <clears throat> Hope on Jesus Christ. And whosoever shall eat of these things shall live forever. He meaneth this. Whosoever, saith he, shall hear these things spoken and shall believe, shall live forever. So, he addresses the passage of John 6. Eat these things. Shall live forever. And he said, and Barnabas, you know, if you want to impeach a, a generation one's church father, uh, if you want to impeach what they understood about this, I mean, uh, I guess, but he's, he takes uh, Christ's word in there to meaneth this. Whosoever saith he shall hear these things spoken and shall believe, shall live forever. So Barnabas's understanding is very much in line with what I've said, what Peter seems to say in the text himself, what the text seems to be testifying, that what Christ is saying is not that the flesh has any pertinence, that the flesh means nothing, that it is his word. His word that is spirit and is truth. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And I'd love to have more examples, but that's all I gotta say on that. Alright, I, IRL, I'm gonna take a super brief break, and then we're gonna go into the next topic. Now actually addressing direct questions for the podcast, though I think they're gonna be a little bit big enough. Um, yeah, I'm gonna their own sections, work through questions. Sorry, that phone call destroyed my train of thought. Yeah. All right, for our next question, <clears throat> or for our first question, actually. Wow, that was quite the break. Okay. 
<clears throat> Isaiah Lowry asks, in our brand new Discord, uh, most excellent Theophilus, same name, it's got a same logo, Celtic Cross. Yeah, <laughs> it's been up for about a week now. Uh, actually, over a week now. Yeah, yeah, since uh, since early last week. <clears throat> Check it out. Um, he asks in the podcast Q and A section: Is the Roman Catholic our brother or sister in Christ? The short answer is maybe. They may be. It is a difficult question, a difficult topic. Galatians 1, 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be condemned. Anathema. Paul threw down the anathema over the addition of just one mere thing. The gospel. There was the gospel. He never says the Galatian heretics denied the gospel. Um, in fact, the Judaizer heresy really had nothing to do with whether or not Christ died and rose again. What it had to do with was saying, in order to be saved, you must first be circumcised. You must first enter the Jewish covenant in order to enter the new covenant with God. That's an affront. It's a scam, a sham, because in order for the new covenant to be for the Gentiles, you have to, of course, be a Gentile. You can't be, you can't become Jewish and then be a Gentile who is saved. <laughs> you simply can't. How can Christ be a light to the Gentiles if you're circumcising all of them, making them Jews? Um, Rome has a gospel that cannot save because they've tacked onto it matters of importance. Of <sighs> They've attached onto it gospel issues that were not original. Jude 3, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, Oh, there's the sin of assumption, presumption. I felt that I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Hmm. For the faith once for all delivered or entrusted to the saints. So there is a Faith that we can define, divine, define, yeah. <laughs> that was delivered once and for all. <clears throat> I can tell you where we can find that faith. 
from between Genesis and Revelation. Every single word and stitch in between is the faith once delivered. They've added on to the once delivered faith, de fide dogma. Bodily assumption, perpetual virginity, immaculate conception. And there are more dogmas yet they would, some would like to add that would go even farther to make Mary out. To be equal with her son. As Christ is pure, so Mary is ever virgin. As Christ is sinless, so Mary is immaculately conceived. As Christ ascends, so Mary is bodily assumed. As Christ is redeemer, so some want Mary to be co-redemptress. As Christ is mediator, the one mediator between God and man. So some Catholics want Mary to be co-mediatrix. Apparently, to them, there is not one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, but rather, there are two mediators between God and man. The man Jesus Christ and the woman Mary. I believe the Catholic can be saved in so much that they are a bad Catholic, but a good follower of Christ. That if one is saved, they are saved despite the Church. Not because of it. When, Stephen, when, they will ask, when did the Church apostatize? It was a slow-boiling process. But when you think of church and apostasy, you're not thinking of it very biblically. I mean, Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. 3.6, This is the mystery that through the gospel Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. The church, the body of Christ, is not a governing council. It is not a building. It is not a group of bishops serving a, an exalted bishop. It is the body of Christ, the bride, the body, the church. You, me, everyone who has put their faith in Christ, everybody who has been redeemed, who the sun sets free is free indeed. The church true church, the true Israel, the body of Christ, his bride, will never 
fall away. The gates of hell will never overcome, as Jesus promised they would so be. And it is the dangerous cultist who believes that it has. The Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness, and the foolish. can never apostatize because the body will never perish, will never turn away. The church, the, the, the building, the building can be spouting falsehoods. But just as there was only one righteous man in Sodom and Gomorrah, so too would it not be wrong were there a time when there was only one righteous man in the church? I, I make no claim that there was such a time, but that would be possible and that would not be beyond the possibility, the bounds. Athanasius, in his day, he stood in defiance of the generally accepted understanding the Council of Nicaea solved nothing. It made a declaration, it made a pretty good creed, but it did not end the dialogue. Athanasius was deposed as a bishop multiple times. He wrote, and he even had to say, I cannot quote ex-council of you, just as you cannot, I cannot quote Nicaea of you, just as you cannot quote ex-council of me. But what do I commend you to? But the scriptures. Incredible. You'd have to technically argue that Athanasius was wrong for standing against the wide majority of the church. I'm not afraid to think that the body of Christ is a little smaller than everybody thinks doesn't scare me, doesn't trouble me, doesn't worry me. The way this world's going, the body of, the present body of Christ, not those who have fallen asleep, but the present body of Christ on the earth is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller, even if the visible body grows and grows and gets fatted as a calf. I've seen the places that grow. They are nothing but yeast and leaven of the Pharisees. They are nothing but false. They are led by false Christs, false prophets who work in signs and wonder and lie and teach for shameful gain that which they ought not. But that's okay. I don't live to please man, but to please my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is why I must contend for the faith once delivered. And when someone comes to me with a faith once delivered but added on to, I must say that that gospel, sir, ma'am, respectfully, is anathema and cannot save you because you have added on the very word of God.
and my advice to the Roman who we must evangelize is this. Repent and believe and be reconciled to Christ. Believe that you have been saved by grace through faith, not of yourself, that not a soul could boast. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, not from yourself, but prepared beforehand that you should do. That it is not you who lives, but Christ in you. That you who were once dead in sin and a slave to it have been made alive in Christ. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You are no longer a slave to sin, but a child. God. You have peace with God if you are in Christ. Ephesians, Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall. Of hostility, thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. There's only one way to be saved, and that's by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the very glory of God alone. As we see in Scripture alone. All right. Before I think the final question, <clears throat> what are your objections to and or agreements with Molinism, if any? Ah, Mullenism. God stares down the corridors of time and elects those. It's complicated. I don't have a... I'll be honest, Theophilus. Oh, by the way, that question is by Aspie Bard, again on the Discord. Discord, sorry, not Discord. Um, I will be honest, I don't have a very... Solid <laughs> doctrine on predestination. E-gasp, yes. It's a very difficult and very to-the-core element of one's relationship with God. And I've searched for answers. And I'm still wrestling with the data. Currently, I would say some form of Molinism would not be a terribly inaccurate label for what I hold to. Certainly, there's something that God means in a Praganeo, in foreknow. In those whom he foreknows, he predestines. What does it mean to foreknow? 
What does it mean to foreknow? I would hold to what I would define as a form of a compatible marriage between the eternal eyes, the eternal gaze of God, seeing all, knowing all, and having a plan for all, and man's will. God demands repentance. I, I cannot find reason in thinking that God is demanding the unable to do anything. That God will demand that things are done that are not done by those who choose their own selfish lusts over God. I understand that. That's perfectly fine. There are those who rebel. But say I'm walking by the creek and I pick up a stone. No, I, I and I set it back down because I didn't mean to pick it up. <clears throat> I'm walking by the creek. I see a stone. I say, skip. 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 And then I take out a sledgehammer and crush it. I didn't give it a fair chance. It was unable to skip by its nature. But if I, finding a stone that is of shape, pick it up and toss it and say skip, it may skip or it may sink. But I've made it able to do so. And I am not ashamed in whether it does or not. I rejoice if it does. I lose nothing. God is not dishonored by the stones that do not skip. Their rebellion becomes rightful justice in judgment as the stubborn and unrepentant store up wrath for the day of God's wrath. The more you push into an orthodox Molinism, the more logically problematic it is. I'd say that the consistent, true, hyper-Molinist has to be an open theist. God can't know. He can look down the corridor of time, which, well, who defined what happens down the corridor of time? If there's multiple universes, if God is choosing the, the universe where the most people will be saved with the least people lost, is God not powerful enough to create a universe in which all would be saved? If, if God's goal is to mid-max our sovereign God, oh, that's my first mistake, is... This is part of the train that denies the sovereignty of God. Sovereign God could save everyone. He could create a universe in which everyone would be saved. If that's what he wanted. 
but that's by no means a biblical or sensible understanding harmony of how God chose to create our reality. Everything is set in motion, not for our benefit, but for God's will and ultimate plan in the salvation of his people. But that's the question is, that's not a question. <laughs> Our salvation is in no way merited, and the idea of God looking down the corridor of time implies there's something meritorious in us. Or if he's looking down the corridor of time and seeing our faith in him, that's a paradox. So he decides to predestine us to be regenerated and conform to the image of Christ because he regenerates us, predestines us to be conformed to the image of Christ, which, as he looks down the corridors of time, he sees the result of his own action conforming us to his image and therefore chooses us even though he chooses us because he chose us. It, you go in circles. You go in circles because God is the great planter of the seed. He's not looking down in time to see where trees will grow and decide to plant a seed there. He plants seeds. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And this facilitated by messengers who bring us the gospel. And that is of grace. I see a duality in scripture, Theophilus, of a grace that is immaculate, is beautiful, moving, gut-wrenching, heart-melting. But a grace resistible. There is a group of people who may shrink back There's a group of those who may fall away, who were saved, but fell into unrepentance. And if we return to our sin after we receive the truth, there is no forgive there is no sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation. See, I'm, I'm a captive of scripture, and so I'm at an impasse. On the one hand, there is there's the eternal gaze of God saying, I have chosen you. And there are, there's Arminius looking at his own two feet, saying, look at me, I'm walking towards God. What if, what if it's both? What if, what if Calvin and Arminian, Arminius focused too much on the perspectives they looked towards? One looking up, and the other looking down. My goal, Theophilus, is to try to look ahead. 
to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? That's a that's an aorta of scripture, that phrase. What does it mean? What is the arm? Is it the grace of God? In the revelation of Christ, of his salvation. Today is the day of the Lord's salvation. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Is that not implying that one can do so? This is something I wrestle with, Theophilus. Pardon a little of my foolishness. But you have put up with it this far. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> In closing, Theophilus, I'd like to read your benediction. <laughs> as we often do. Matthew 5, 3 through 12. Jesus spake these things to his disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Go in the peace and the love of our Lord and our Savior and our God incarnate, our Tolaf work. Until next time, good week and God bless.